just because you fail the test does not make you a failure. And so often we kind of identify with what works well and what doesn't. And when we can separate that and know we're okay, whether we're doing well or we're in a developmentally effective experience, it allows us to show up very, very differently, right? Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good morning, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. Really excited this morning. I am joined by Dr. Ron Gleckman. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm very glad to be here, David. Thanks. Yeah, I know it's been a long time in the making. So Ron, you were kind enough to join us this morning. For those of our listeners who may not know, I know you're an author, you're a professor, but could you tell everyone just a little bit about your current role? Sure. I'm currently the CIO of Trader Joe's, private specialty food grocer and uh, a national chain of neighborhood stores in the United States. Of course. It was funny, I was telling my wife before I left the house this morning, I'll have to let you know that I ate your artichoke dip and and salmon when I got home from my uh, trip at 10 o'clock last night. Excellent, thank you. Fantastic. So Ron, I want to dive into your journey as an executive, and I know we're going to have a lot of advice over the course of this episode, because I also want to talk a little bit about your book. But we like to start the episode with just one piece of actionable advice you might want to leave the listeners with today. If you're at any stage of your leadership journey, I think it's really important to be self-aware about what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are that you really don't want to spend a lot of time at this stage of your career getting better at and surround yourself with people who have complementary skills that pick up gaps in your own experience and capabilities and build the most effective team that you can going forward. I think trying not to be everything to everyone, understanding who you are and being authentic and leveraging your strengths in the service of your mission and getting people around you who are better and smarter and can help you, you know, get to where you're going. I think that's the best piece of advice that I could give you this morning, at least it's top of mind. Yeah, no, it's early out there. I appreciate that, man. So Ron, let's, let's dive in. So 
I want to learn a little bit more about how you started out and how you came to be the you know CIO of one of the more well-known grocers globally. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, it's not going to be a very straight line. You know, I find as I look back, my, I have an experience and I reflect on that experience. And then I try to figure out based on what went well and what didn't, what I should be thinking about doing next. And so I guess that journey starts leaving my family of origins home when I was 18 for a bunch of personal reasons. Things weren't going well at the house and I needed to go to work. And at the time, the gap was really early in its uh, journey to develop the iconic brand that it became. There were just a few hundred stores and they were looking for young people like me to, to get into the stores. And so I got into retail. They had a management training program, which I jumped into and became a store manager at a relatively young age. And, you know, the lesson there was, you know, training is so important, getting into a company especially early on, you know, and get some skills and some capabilities from people who have been doing things for a long time. So I love that. While I was there, I went to school to get my business degree. I went to school at night at a, you know, fully accredited university at the time that was allowing me to work full time. IBM came uh, to the school. This is back in the late seventies and early eighties. And Computers were just getting started and they were trying to get a major for information systems at the school at National University. Uh, I took the aptitude test that IBM gave all of the students and I passed by one point. So I became an IT major, you know, it was as simple as that. When I graduated, I went back to the gap and said, Hey, listen, I love the stores. I love the brand. And now I've got this education. I learned about tech and you have this IT organization. I'd like to engage and maybe put my operation skills to work in the IT organization. And they said, no, we don't, we don't hire people who don't know anything. We need people with experience. And so that drove me to find an organization where I could get experience and get training. And so I started to look around at what was happening at the time. And Ross Perot was running a company called Electronic Data Systems. And he only wanted to hire people who didn't know anything because he had the Ross Perot way of training systems engineers. So I joined and went through a really amazing development program. His thing was three phases. The first is learn a business. So again, I started in the business. I got into a health claims data entry shop for claims processing, did that for a while, learned all of the business processes, and then went to their systems engineering development program, got some technical skills and ended up writing code for the healthcare industry. And that was also really good foundational stuff for me. After a while, it becomes kind of constraining to work in an organization like that. So actually what really happened was I got fired. So that was my first experience getting canned. The company at the time was very specific to people about, hey, labor's really tough. We love our people. Tell us what you want to do. And, you know, we're going to do everything in our power to keep you happy. And I was working in an online group at the time, which was pretty prestigious. My boss came to me and said, we need you to get into a batch group and work all night and run systems overnight. And I said, you know, I you've talked about happiness and keeping everybody engaged and I really like what I'm doing. So I don't really want to do that. And he said, I don't think you understand. You don't have a choice. And I was young and, you know, they, I was taking their words seriously rather than really thinking about the meaning. And I held my ground and they walked me out, put my stuff in a box and put me on the street. So that was a very interesting 
learning experience about, you know, yes, there is the mission. Yes, there are the words that people say, but sometimes, you know, you need to take a diversion or you need to allow some exceptions. Ultimately, I needed that experience. And if somebody would have said to me, listen, this is about career development. You've done a great job in what you're doing, but we need you to get these other bricks in your foundation in order to really be the technologist that you want to be or the leader that you want to be. I might have taken it very differently, but it was not positioned that way. So anyway, that was a great experience. After that, I went into consulting at KMPG, Pete Marwick. Didn't really like being on the outside. So I left there and joined Ralph's Grocery Company, where I spent 10 years. And really, that was my formative journey from individual contributor as a technologist into a management role and ultimately a director level. While I was at Ralph's, I went back to school, got my MBA at the University of Southern California. And when Ralph's got into some acquisition kinds of activities and the company was bought and a new leadership team came in, I left and, and became the first CIO at a specialty grocery company in, in Los Angeles called Bristol Farms. Private equity people had hired a new CEO. They wanted to get a bunch of new things done there. So they hired me to do that. And I was there for several years. Money ran out, business decisions kind of tampered the growth. And I looked for the next thing to do and got an opportunity to go overseas and move to Hong Kong to be the CIO of a British conglomerate, a grocery company there. Learned a tremendous amount of working in different cultures. And a lot of those lessons I tried to share in my book. And so that was a great experience. After that, uh, I had a two-year contract. I came back to work for the duty-free shops. There, we did a very big transformation. We had several hundred stores all over the world. We sold specialty goods and food and jewelry to travelers. After 9-11, sales dropped overnight when people stopped traveling. And that was my first really big opportunity to do a transformation. We had to cut our operating expenses 50%. Overnight. And, you know, we went about doing that. And there were a number of lessons that were learned from that experience. After leaving duty free shops, I joined a company. I was hired by a guy who bought 50 companies in 69 countries. And he asked me to create uh, one enterprise IT organization for the whole. This was a freight forwarding and logistics company called UTI. Uh, managed that transformation through the end, including a leadership transformation. The guy who hired me retired and the individual who came in also built his own team and at the appropriate time, let me go. So second time I was fired on my journey and, and that led me to uh, an opportunity to join Trader Joe's and I've been there for 10 years. Wow. So we already kind of talked about some of the important things that you learned along the way, but you know, when you think back to your journey, Ron, what would you say sticks out in your mind as one of the most important things that you learned and what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I, I think the big lesson is to control feelings that well up when things get difficult. I think I often sort of ran from significant challenges because I got afraid or I got anxious. A great example would be duty-free shops. We had done a transformation. I cut my operating expenses in half. We got the business back on its feet. And shortly thereafter, bird flu came to Asia. And again, sales dropped. And the CEO got the leadership team together and said, okay, I need another, you know, whatever, five, $10 million in order to weather this storm. And I just freaked out. I mean, I, we had done all of this. And I was like, how could we not acknowledge what we just accomplished? What do you mean we have to do it again? 
And I just felt like it was going to be impossible. And honestly, that, that led me to sort of flee rather than understand there are options and implications when taking on significant challenges. And it's really important to kind of breathe through the angst and gain some perspective and move forward one step at a time so that you can learn and see where things go. And so I think for me, that was the biggest lesson. And so, you know, subsequent to the duty-free shops, when I got to UTI, you know, there were a number of challenges there, including the leadership transformation and bringing in a new person to take over for me. And I knew that was coming and it made me uncomfortable, but I just decided, you know what, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to do the best I can for as long as possible. And I'm going to see where it leads. And it ended up serving me well. We got some things done for the organization. I was treated very fairly on the way out and it led me to an amazing opportunity at TJ's. And so I think that's a really big lesson is to understand that, you know, feelings come first and will drive your actions. And the stronger the feeling, the higher the likelihood that feeling will drive your behavior. I mean, the greatest example today is the slap at the Oscars, right? Obviously something took over that drives Will Smith up onto the stage, probably much bigger and older than whatever the line was that the comedian said. And so, you know, recognizing that those feelings come first, learning how to deal with those so you can be responsive instead of reactive, I think is an, just an essential lesson. Yeah, 100%. I've come to find that there's very little I can do to control that feeling as it comes up or that thought, that first feeling or first thought, but it's what I do with it after that. And, you know, for me, for the longest time coming up, I would run from that feeling or I would try to find ways to, to pacify that feeling. And there's really not a lot of growth there. You know, there's really not a lot of growth or, or there wasn't for me. And I also really appreciate what you said, because part of how I move through those feelings or thoughts today is you said one step at a time or one day at a time for me, like, what, you know, one moment at a time, sometimes really, it seems simple and kind of cliche, but what it really boils down to for me is that I'm not living in the past. I'm not projecting into the future. I'm staying present in the moment. And that empowers me to really move through things as they happen and not, you know, freak out about what's next or relive, you know, what has already passed. So yeah, I love that advice. Love that advice. What about a time that sticks out in your mind, Ron, as, you know, either a project that failed or a moment in your life that you were challenged, but you ultimately took a profound lesson away from that uh, instance. Is, is there something that sticks out in your mind you might share with us? I mean, there are just too many accounts. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, to your point, the learning comes from the most difficult experiences. I guess I think for me, from a business perspective, the Bristol Farms experience was really profound for me. And it was something I got to observe and be part of. It was a three-store company that was acquired by these private equity folks. It was run by one individual and they had a great brand. They had great product, great service. And the people who came in said, okay, we're going to scale this. And they made assumptions about 
how fast we could go and how many stores we could open without really understanding, taking a beat and understanding what were the dynamics that made the three stores successful. And, you know, looking back, the dynamics were the owner was in all three stores every single day. He talked to people. He talked to customers. He was the champion for the culture. He made very specific decisions that it was not going to be technology driven, that it was going to be human interaction, amazing experience. I mean, they didn't do point of sale or scanning. They rang stuff up in the day and on old registers. And so, you know, this group came in and said, we're just going to put stores, we're just going to start popping them out and we're going to build technology and ultimately got away from what really mattered. And so people got super uncomfortable. They felt like they weren't being seen and heard as much as they were under the previous owner. We put stores in places where we assumed people would drive. And in the end, the three original stores were in tight communities with enough people and demographics to be a real, you know, neighborhood store. And so, you know, some of those things really slowed the growth. From a tech point of view, we focused on the wrong things in the wrong order. And it was just all because we didn't listen. We didn't listen to our customers. We didn't listen to our employees. We didn't really respect and talk in great detail with the founders, the entrepreneurs, the owners about what was the secret sauce and whether we would have decided to continue in that vein or slowed down or built some bricks in the wall before we built you know, the second and third story on that foundation. I think that was a very important, you know, lesson for me that, you know, you really need to listen and pay attention and you have to sometimes go slow to go fast. And if you take off too fast, you know, you get slowed down in a hurry when you bang into that wall. So anyway, that's a story from the business side that I think might, might be useful. Yeah, no, incredibly useful. I, and I had a similar experience with a client where when I was a little younger in my career starting Disruptive, we had an executive team that came in and really took over an IT project, but didn't really have the wherewithal to dictate how fast it should go or what should come first. When I was in that position, I felt like I couldn't speak up because I didn't want to lose the client. I didn't want to rock the boat. And I was like, I'll make it work. Like, I'll figure it out. And sure enough, you know, we just ran into wall after wall until, you know, finally we got some leadership in there that allowed us to finish things up, but it wasn't after project was way over budget. It was delayed by way too long. Nowadays, I'm very adamant before we even engage with a client about telling them, listen, I'm going to be a challenger. You know, if I see something. I'm going to say, guys, you know, we can't do that. And that's why you're hiring me, right? You know, you don't want a, a yes man. You, you know, you want somebody who's going to bring their experience to the table so that it can hopefully guide you. I digress. Ron, I, I want to get into to your, your book um, because I, I had the opportunity to read it. You were kind enough to send it to me. And I'm really excited to share that with the listeners today. But before we do, I'd like to just ask your favorite book, either all time or that you've read recently. I'm interested to know your thoughts on that. You know, one that I come back to all the time is The Goal 
it's an old standard and it's about business processes and continuous improvement. And it's written by, I think, Goldratt. And it's written in novel form. So it's about this guy and his son and his Cub Scout troop and sort of figuring out how to, you know, make that troop have fun and great experiences. And in doing that, he learns a lot of things about the manufacturing business that he was trying to fix. And one of the great stories in there for me is he's on this hike with the scouts and it's not going fast enough. And he's in the back of the line and he realizes that kind of the slowest kid is in the front of the line. And he says, okay, so he, he gets that little guy to come to the back of the line. And all of a sudden the whole line starts moving faster and the little guy kept up and you know, it, it's a great example of queuing theory, right? Which I struggle to understand even today when people give me the mathematics. But when you think about, you know, the slowest person kind of being the gatekeeper and, you know, making some minor changes, it allows you to move much faster. So I, I really love that book. And I, I also like Leadership and the New Science by Whitley. She talks about physics and leadership and compares and contrasts the two things. And it's a little bit outside the box, but it's a good read. Yeah, I have to check that out. I've never heard of the second one. So I'm going to look into that. So Ron, let's talk about your book. So I appreciated your book on multiple levels. It's just chock full of stuff that I have learned from my experiences and a bunch of Oh, wow. Yeah. Moments throughout the book. And I particularly appreciated the kind of practical applications you continuously offer throughout the read. But let's dive in. I mean, so your book is called Lead for a Change. You start the first chapter with a kind of interesting paradigm about happiness not being the goal, which I was like, huh, I, I, it kind of got me thinking. Maybe you could tell us just a little bit about the book, kind of what precipitated the book, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about why you believe in this construct, happiness is not the goal. Thank you. So yeah, the book is just a collection of lessons that I've learned throughout my career journey, you know, with many people that I've worked for and I've worked with. And, you know, I've been encouraged to try to write these things down, you know, for quite some time. And after doing my doctoral program, I focused my research on preparing first-generation students in their families who are going to college for leadership uh, in the workforce. So specifically in California, I teach at Hispanic-serving institutions, so it's people, Latino and Latina students. And, you know, I learned a lot in my focus was what curriculum do we need to teach to help these leaders understand, you know, that one, they could lead. You don't have to be born a certain way. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to come from a certain demographic. So we got to overcome the beliefs that you shouldn't be a leader, first of all. And then what are the skills and tools that can go into a tool bag and help a leader at any stage of their journey? And so, you know, my sort of academic experience helped me get a framework for kind of writing things down in a way that might be consumable for people and then sort of added all of these, you know, kind of previous experiences and went about trying to create a field guide for people that, you know, not that you memorize and regurgitate stuff, but that you see things both in words or in images and you might remember sometime, I have to go have a difficult conversation. Let me go back and check that diagram out and 
read about Ron's experience and maybe it will be informative as I, you know, try to take this conversation on. And so one of the first lessons I learned back at Duty Free was happiness is not the goal. And, you know, I learned it because we had to cut the business in half. And in doing so, we had to lay off a lot of people. They were not happy. We kept people and put tremendous pressure on them to do more than they were ever asked to do before. They were not happy. Leadership was challenged to get through this. Customers were not getting the service and products that they wanted. You know, ultimately, the owners were happy because we achieved the objective. And in the fullness of time, people got to a place where they were happier, I would say. And going back to the point that you made earlier about that client where you were feeling uncomfortable, maybe telling them what you were seeing or what the truth of the moment might be. That's what it gets at for me. It's like when you have that hard conversation, that person might not be happy. They might not even like you in the moment. But really what it comes down to is we made a bunch of assumptions about what was going to happen when we begin this journey. And some of those assumptions have changed. And as a result, we need to rethink the expectations, right? So prior to 9-11, the assumptions were, we're going to grow this company. We're going to open more more geographies, get more duty-free stores and in airports. And after 9-11, we weren't going to do any of that. Right. We are going to cut our business down and, and try to save it and prepare for a future that many people would not even be working there, you know, to see. And so that meant we needed to recalibrate our expectations. We needed to talk about the options and implications that we had, and we needed to align with one another around a set of principles and activities that were going to make it happen. And not everybody agreed, but the key thing was we needed to disagree and commit and either agree and commit or disagree and commit. But if you couldn't make that commitment, you really didn't belong on the journey. So that's kind of a broader context about that point of view. I actually wanted to title the book, Happiness is Not the Goal, and my publisher was like, no, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) It's going to sound like a pop psychology book. And, you know, so anyway, I did manage to keep it as the title for the first chapter, which many people ask me about it. So it must be provocative, which was the goal. Yeah. Yeah. But I identify with it. And, you know, I also appreciate, you know, your emphasis on the value of well-defined expectations and the fact that the expectations may change, you know, and we were kind of talking about that before we jumped on and the fact that, you know, if things do change, I need to, I can reset and I can, you know, redefine those expectations and then continue to strive forward. But the, you know, I really, you know, one of the first things that really, I mean, that the happiness not being the goal, I mean, resonated right away. But then you also started to talk about authenticity fueling change leadership. And maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the transactional versus transformational leader. I really, I really appreciated that as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of different leaders, you know, and transactional leaders are focused on a moment in time and getting a specific task accomplished or series of tasks. And they are less concerned about what might be learned from those experiences, how it positions people and the organization, you know, for the future. And there are many leaders who do a great job at that. And there are many circumstances where that is required. Right. 
you know, relational leaders are really about the longer term goal and making sure that people learn from each experience and that while you're uh, performing the tasks or achieving what the transaction requires, you're also transforming the nature of the individuals and the processes and the capabilities to make that team or organization stronger and better. And we didn't have the opportunity at duty-free shops after 9-11 to focus too much on the relational side of things. We had a transaction to take care of and it was hair on fire, you know, lead, follower, get out of the way. You know, and during the UTI transformation, we had time to focus on relationships and understand what was happening in the business and, you know, try to put the best enabling technologies in place to, to support that business. And so, you know, one has to choose what style is most appropriate for the moment and then put leaders with that style in place. You put a transactional leader in a relationship oriented, you know, dynamic, and, you know, they're going to not be happy and probably not achieve what is ultimately required. You put someone who's more relational in a transactional situation, they might not have the capacity to, you know, to deal with all the challenges in the moment. So I do think it's different strokes for different folks, but I really enjoy the relational side of things, the long-term play, building capabilities. And, you know, I found in my research tells me too, that leadership can be taught. We're all capable of learning to lead. And I believe we should understand our strengths and build from those and not try to be somebody we're not. And then, as I said, kind of at the outset, surround yourself with people who have those complementary skills to really make an ensemble cast that is better than any of the individuals. You also made an interesting distinction about leading versus leadership. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So the leader, and I like Brene Brown's work, she's amazing. She, you know, talks about, you know, a leader being somebody who has the ability to find the potential in people and processes and the courage to develop it. And leadership is a process and leadership is about getting together with a group of others, followers, peers, superiors, and I narrowed the definition to accomplish positive change, to act with integrity, to build trust and to make positive things happen. And I get that positivity can be a judgment call, but you know, it excludes people like Hitler who were, you know, he was a leader. He got a lot of stuff done. He got people to follow him, but you know, that was in my view and, you know, not a positive thing. And some of the political discourse going on in this country is not necessarily positive. And I don't believe people are acting with integrity. And I recognize those are religious arguments, but you know, that is the difference between the leader and the process of leadership. And the leader should find their strengths, find their authentic voice and find that potential in others and themselves and develop that and work on a process uh, to make positive things happen. And I think it's been super rewarding for me to do those things. And the book is really about ways to go about doing that, developing yourself as a leader and others, and also making things happen for the good. Yeah, I, I really appreciated too, as I read it more about self-authorship and you know, authentic leadership and kind of thinking back on all the times that have really shaped the person that I am today, those developmentally 
effective experiences, right? As I, I think you referred to them, which I had also had never heard before, but really the significance, and we kind of talked about it earlier, of persisting through the discomfort, right? And the fact that truly my most profound moments of change led out of not just IT projects that, that failed, but some of the most difficult personal experiences that I've ever been through have had the biggest impact on my development as a leader. Um, so it just really resonated with me. I'm glad. I mean, I love that model. So th that research comes from a woman named Baxter Magolda, and she studied people 18 to 30 to try to figure out how they develop as human beings. And she really said there are three domains that people need to focus on for their personal development. Interpersonal skills, which is your ability to work in relationships with other people. Intrapersonal skills, which is understanding yourself and, you know, your emotions and how to manage those things to be the most effective person you can be. And the third was epistemological, which is really about how do you make meaning from your experience? How do you learn from every opportunity? And you know, she talked about four phases of, and by the way, those three things, interpersonal and making meaning are the same things that the leadership scholars talk about relative to developing as the most effective leader you can be. And that's what struck me in my research is that intersection between personal development and leadership development and what got me so excited, you know? And so my goal to her research kind of boils down to four phases that we go through. The first phase she calls external formulas and formulas are the things we believe in our attitudes and our values. And those formulas come from others. When we're young, they come from our parents, the clergy, coaches, teachers, and we learn some things that become our own values and beliefs. And then when we get to about 18, we get out into the world and we hit what she calls the crossroads. And we start to experience this term called cognitive dissonance, which is the feeling that what we believe may not be true. And what you do in the crossroads helps you to move forward to the next phase, which she calls self-authoring, which how she named the theory, and that's writing your own story. So taking the things that you learned to believe when you were young and keeping the positive, maybe rejecting things that don't serve you, learning from your experiences and writing your own story. And then when you get to the fourth phase, she calls it internal formulas where you're now sharing your beliefs with others. And so the fuel that drives people through the crossroads and the self-authoring are what she calls developmentally effective experiences. And what that really is, is a positive word for the most difficult things. When the shit hits the fan, when you're miserable, when things aren't working, and rather than crawl up into a ball or run away because your feelings are so strong, you know, the encouragement is to say, what is the lesson that I can learn here? This is an opportunity for me to develop and grow in one of those key areas. And so it creates a positive frame on what others might perceive as a very difficult circumstance. And that frame says there's no bad outcome. There's only lessons to be learned, you know? And uh, that's why I love that model and, and why I write about it, because it really is the secret sauce to developing as an incredible human and a great leader. And so I, I appreciate you pointing that out. So there's a little context there for you. 
Yeah, no, it's super helpful. And I'm glad you brought up the values that are ingrained in us or the the beliefs that are ingrained in us as a child, right? There's so much significance that I have learned about and that I acknowledge that you wrote about and we just started talking about of that early childhood development. And for me, it took a lot of work during that crossroads period to unwind that, you know, not to get into all of it, right? But I really had to dig deep and it to therapy and this and that. And it, it was a journey, man, but I'm so glad that I did it because it got me to where I am today. And I am so, I'm so much more comfortable with the uncomfortable today, especially when you're leading a company. I mean, obviously we all have our personal stuff that comes up as it comes. Life is life. But in, in business at this level, there's uncomfortable conversations, there's angst, there's pretty much all the time, right? Like, but it's today I can just breathe through it. And you know, it's, it is what it is. And just arriving at that place today, some days are better than others. And I'll tell you that it's more of a practice than anything else. You know, the, the meditation I do, it's not like I've arrived, right? But staying grounded in this person that I've become and the ways that I do that allow me to show up and walk through these situations in a way that I just was not able to before. And that's incredible. And, you know, so one of the things I'm going to suggest that you learn, and I tell my students this all the time, just because you fail the test does not make you a failure. And so often we kind of identify with what works well and what doesn't. And when we can separate that and know we're okay, whether we're, you know, doing well or we're in a developmentally effective experience, it allows us to show up very, very differently. Right. And so I think that's an important lesson. And the internal formulas are tough. I mean, I'll give you a a personal story. I mean, I struggle with certain subjects in school when I was a kid and my, math teacher would tell my parents that I was lazy and not trying hard enough. I was smart, but, you know, lazy and, you know, kind of stupid. And my parents believed the authority and amplified that at home. And I ended up believing that I was lazy and stupid, you know, and I didn't understand until my daughter was diagnosed with a a learning disability that I probably had an undiagnosed learning disability. Math was not my thing. I could learn it, but I needed to be taught differently but I was never going to be a mathematician or a rocket scientist, right? And so I carried that rock, that belief with me through all of my, you know, journey, my work journey and my studies. And, you know, now as a grown person with, you know, some education behind me, I know differently, right? And when I wrote my book, my dad read it. He's 91. And we had an interesting conversation because he said, wow, I learned so much about you. There's the whole conversation around, well, we could have had these conversations earlier on, but let's not get there. But the point was, I rewrote that story about myself. I am not stupid and I am not lazy. And I didn't need to go back and like shine the light on him. But my narrative now, my story about myself is very different than the one that he created for me early in my formative years. And, you know, you got to forgive for that, but it's so liberating when you can see things through maybe a a clearer lens or get your story to a place that serves you and helps you serve others. And so that's what some of these things are all about. Yeah. And dovetailing out of that, I would just say that 
I also really appreciated how you talked about the power of purpose and direction. Because, you know, some people could look at what we do, right? And it's kind of nerdy. Why would they like, you know, doing that all day, right? But when I think about why we're doing this to, and, and you talked about service, like serving my employees, serving our customers and having an impact on the communities that they serve. That's the purpose, right? That's why we're doing this. And that's what gets me excited. And so when you talked about that, that also really resonated with me. Thank you. Yeah. And I've got some, I've got a nice model in there to help people create a, a purpose for themselves or a, a purpose and vision model or for a project or for a company. And I think it's key. And tech is so important in this conversation because I really believe it's a means to an end, not an end in itself. And that the means to an end to your point is making a business better or helping a nonprofit, you know, and even below that, it's helping the people who are participating on that project to realize their own potential and to grow as humans and as leaders. And so that for me is what purpose is about. And it can get you up in the morning and get real excited. You know, when you devolve into the technology religious arguments about Oracle versus SQL, I mean, it's soul crushing, man. It doesn't matter, you know? <laughs> so true. It's I'm so sure true. many listeners will take me up on that argument, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to just understand what's important. And I think purpose can help really articulate that North Star. And, you know, along the way, you'll have to course correct and reset expectations and you'll be happy and unhappy from time to time. But, you know, moving towards that purpose, I've just found to be very helpful. For me, when I'm acting in service and with purpose and direction, I experience joy, right? Which is different for me than happiness. It's more lasting and it comes from a different place, you know? So, I mean, this has been great. A couple last questions for you. One would be, we've talked a lot about your book, which is fantastic. You know, just getting back into technology a little bit, any innovations that you see in the, you know, retail grocer industry that you're particularly excited about or that are kind of on the roadmap for the future that you're able to talk about or share with us? I mean, I can only speak in general terms. I think one needs to be careful about technology. And just as we talked earlier, I mean, it really needs to be a means to an end. And so you have to understand your business strategy and what technology is going to fuel that strategy and what technology, you know, might be a deterrent, you know, and for some companies moving to leading edge technology is going to be perceived as impossible and kind of a breakthrough idea that requires a lot of thought around the culture, the capabilities, the beliefs that people have, the skill sets to get you there. That same thing in a different company is going to be considered a marginal improvement because they have all that DNA and all of those skill sets. And so it's important to think about the organization and the culture when you're picking a technology. I mean, I really like RFID relative to, you know, its capability to enhance uh, productivity. It's not quite where it needs to be yet. But I mean, I imagine a day when there's an RFID tag on the product label and, you know, instead of all this crazy technology people have to, you know, self shop, you could just put the stuff in your basket and walk out the store and have it scanned accurately and charge you. I think we're several years away, but, you know, I, that could be an interesting innovation to 
redeploy people to working with customers and selling products. But, you know, I work in an arena that's very people oriented. So I guess I don't have a great tech suggestion for you. I just don't think about it, you know, in those terms. And I'm rarely on the leading edge. Yeah, but I appreciate that because, you know, what you mentioned about understanding where they're at as a business. And I mean, in my experience too, oftentimes the core of the solve are truly operational improvements or process improvements that need to be made and the technology is a means to an end. And as it pertains to RFID, or I was just having a conversation with another retail leader about self-checkout. And, you know, when that first came out, I kind of poo-pooed it myself because I was like, I don't want to do this. Like I'm paying you to check my stuff out, like check my stuff out. But, you know, we were talking about Lowe's and how it's interesting because Lowe's, you have self-checkout, but the way that they've done it, the folks that formerly may have been deployed in checking people out are now in the store so that they can help you figure out what you need from a you're building something, you need to fix your pipes, you need to, that's when I need help because I don't know anything and they're there to help. And so then it started, and, and it's kind of like you just said, if you're able to just walk out the store, that allows the people to kind of be with you and interact you more readily, not just at the point of sale, which is kind of an interesting uh, thing to think about. Yeah. And they're using it in service of their strategy. And so if I got a few items and I want to check myself out and I'm comfortable doing it because not everybody is, or I can go stand in line and get a cashier to help me. And so, you know, I was on the board of Optimal Robotics back in the day when those original systems were built and it took years and years for it to get to the mainstream where it is today. There've been several iterations beyond the original conception, but I, I think it is appropriate to align with a strategy, but to say, I'm going to put self-checkout in and I don't care whether my customers can use it or can't use it or want to write a check or have cash or, you know, are too old to see the screen. I mean, then that's a problem. And when you're driven to just, you know, shrink your cost to the maximum and not serve your customers, I think that is a transactional leadership sort of a strategy, right? It is not relational. It is not long-term. It is not serving the greater good, in my opinion. So, you know, I think that's a yeah. good one. Yeah, I agree. This has been so cool, Ron. I really appreciate you taking the time today. The last question I would just have for you is, if you could go back 5, 10, 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I think circling back to the original thing, it's like learn to understand and recognize your feelings, especially the big ones of anxiety and fear. When you're at the beginning of your career, you don't know anything and you need to learn and tolerate those feelings, learn to be uncomfortable, recognize that discomfort is where we learn and go through the experience. And whether it's one that you say, I've mastered it, I'm going to do more of it, or I've mastered it and I really didn't like that, I'm never going to do it again. You then have a brick in your foundation to say, I have experienced this and I'm not just guessing or projecting. I know what works and what doesn't. And you know, I got there in the end, but it would have been really helpful early in my career. I agree. <laughs> I wish I would have read your book earlier in my career. Ron, this is great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. David, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if any of your readers grab my book, you have my 
email address and my contact information. I'd love to hear from people and I'm more than willing to engage on these topics one-on-one. It's a lot of fun for me. Thank you. Yeah, I'll absolutely do that. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.